Welcome to the Sonic Nuance Electronics Podcast, focusing on topics of interest to the modern performing musician. Today's interview is with Sean Fairchild, owner of Fairchild Sound and a professional bassist. Hey, Sean, thanks for coming on. I'm glad to have you on board today. Well, thank you, Ted. I'm glad to be here. This is, uh, this is pretty cool. This is pretty exciting for me. Oh, great. Uh, I was looking at your websites, both Fairchild Sound and the Sean Fairchild website, and you have an interesting story in how you came to the bass. Can you share it with us? Yeah, it's it is it was kind of um it's really accidental. Uh I was uh I was playing saxophone in school. I forget how old I was at that point, but <clears throat> um somewhere I think I started maybe around the age of 10 or 11 and uh so my I, I grew up overseas um because my dad and my mom were diplomats and they worked for the state department, so every 2 years we we lived somewhere else. When we moved to Washington, when I was um, just a little a little under 10 years old, uh, my, my folks split up. My dad kept doing that job, and I would go and visit him for summers at a time. And he was living in Tokyo. Um, if from I forget the years specifically, but I visited him uh, on the summers of 94, 95, and 96. And I think that first time, or possibly the, the second time that I went, uh, I was given a bass by these these friends of his. He had befriended this band of Australian musicians called the Hitmen, and their bass player's name was Kerry. And I wish I could remember his last name, but unfortunately, I can't. Um, and uh, I, it, it's great. I actually have a picture of this moment. It's so cool. So he had asked me at some point if I wanted this extra bass that he had. And I was like, what's a bass? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Why not? And... Um, yeah, and he, he had explained that um, a friend of his had been walking down the streets of Tokyo somewhere and saw this instrument case in a dumpster, like sticking out of a dumpster, and pulled it out. And sure enough, it was it was a bass in perfect working, playing condition. It, it was uh, The brand was Kasuga, and it was this ripoff of a Gibson EBO, uh-huh. the short-scale bass with, with flat-wound strings and stuff. And uh, so that was my that was my very first bass was a Japanese copy of a Gibson EBO. <laughs> and what did you do with it when you got it? You didn't know what a bass was. How did you get started? No, I didn't know. I didn't know what it was. And and that's I was, I was saying uh, earlier. That I had this picture. I don't know who took it. I guess my my dad or my stepmom or something. But I have a picture of the moment when I kind of I I kind of consider that the moment that I became a bass player. And it's so cool because we're sitting on we're sitting on my bed and I'm I'm like I have my saxophone strapped on and Carrie has the bass case open and is pulling the bass out of the case like as he's giving it to me which is pretty cool to have that, that moment immortalized. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really know what a bass player was supposed to be because I kind of went, I kind of came to the instrument accidentally, which I really am appreciative of now because I feel like I didn't have a lot of the, the hangups that some bass players have um, in regards to like a certain set of rules. And I feel like when kids are kind of not burdened by a bunch of rules and given free reign on stuff they end up a lot of times being more creative with things and using things in in a way that maybe they weren't intended in the first place but kind of become cool so uh yeah so i needed an amp 
So, uh, so my dad took me around to the whatever the the music district was in Tokyo, and I got this little battery powered. I think it was a Marshall amp. It looked like a little Marshall stack, and it clipped to your belt. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I started just messing around. It had a little distortion channel, so I think right away I was playing like weird distorted things. And <laughs> I took it home, and uh, that was that was in June of '94, I think actually. And I took it home, and by December of that year, I had another bass, and I was like, I am a bass player now, and this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. If you happen to come across the picture, send it over to me and I'll, I'll post it on the website uh, with this uh, interview. I will, sure. I can, I can take a picture of the picture. It's, that it's that would be fine, yeah. So you're involved in the band Combinator. I think it's a fantastic band that everybody should check out, especially the album All Sound. Tell me how that band came about. Sure. Well, uh so it has its roots in my relationship with uh, with a drummer whose name is Isaac Chirino. And uh, I mentioned earlier us, uh, my family, moving to, to Washington when I was pretty young. Well, he was the first guy that I met after after we moved, like the first good friend that I made. And we were we were friends in Cub Scouts. And he grew up to be a drummer and a really, really good drummer. So um, we have we've done musical collaborations for many many years. So I'm I'm 36 now. So we've known each other for like 26 years or 25 years. It's a, a pretty good amount of time. And most most of the bands that either he or I have been in, we've been in with each other. We've both been in a couple bands that that the other one wasn't in. But so we've had this uh, this great working relationship for a long time and a lot of similar tastes and. Isaac and I had uh, had tried to do this electroacoustic sort of thing, this this duo called Chi Child. It's a mixture of our last names um, that we were doing with with a laptop and Ableton Live and laptop tracks and stuff. And it was like live drum and bass with electroacoustic sort of things going on. And it was fun, but it was a real big pain in the butt, to be honest. And it didn't really work out so well. Um, so we were looking to get back into more of a band situation and the best bands that he and I have ever been in have been kind of power trios, uh, but they've all been generally rock oriented. So we, we wanted to do something that was a little more on the funky side, a little more soul, a little more jazz. And uh, a mutual friend introduced us to Greg Pascal, who's the wonderful guitarist and combinator and um we hit it off right away. Greg was at an interesting point in his career and, and life, and he was really available to be able to, to play with us and to create new music and, and just kind of jump in head first. And uh, we all kind of decided that we liked rock, we liked progressive elements, but more than all that, we liked groove-oriented music and, and funk. And so we kind of just merged all those things and added in a little bit of uh, Latin flavor and just a tiny little bit of the, the electronic stuff that we were trying to do before. And that kind of all created, uh, all, all combined, hence the name Combinator, to, uh, to create that band and the, the unique sound that it has. One of my favorite things that Combinator has done is the lead up and the chorus of the song Bleed the Feeling Full. And this is an example of why I'm a fan. I, I hear hints of Primus in the syncopation and the instrumentation, the Grateful Dead and Squeeze in terms of the lead vocals, Cake in terms of the horns on the chorus, Rush and B Blues Traveler on the lead break, 
and Rage Against the Machine for the drum and bass groove during the verses. Uh, and I'll, I'll never forget working out in a gym on a cruise ship on the way to Alaska, listening to this in my headphones when that chorus came up. And uh, plus, it's got a great bass intro, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so, so I'm hearing all these these different sounds in Combinator. Tell me about the musical influences that you guys have. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of the ones you just mentioned uh, are are huge influences, really. Um, interestingly enough, too, I think our influences are actually pretty different from the three of us. I mean, Isaac and I have a lot of common ground um, with with funk stuff, but uh, he, for one, just to start there, he uh, had a big like punk rock um, kind of phase in his musical life um, that I, I went through to a smaller extent, but he really experienced that in a much more authentic way. So he kind of has this more uh, punk rock, hardcore aesthetic, and then he was always into to Latin drumming. He used to be a part of a Brazilian group here in Seattle, um, and it was always into doing this cool like Latin stuff. So that's kind of where he's coming from. And then, you know, me as a bass player, a bunch of the folks you just mentioned are, are huge. I'm a huge fan of, and uh, those bass players are huge idols of mine. So I love Primus. I love Rush. Uh, I love the Chili Peppers, early Rage Against the Machine. And I've seen all those bands multiple times. And, uh, and, and I write a lot of, um, of the content. So I guess it's a little bit natural that that comes out in the stuff that I tend to write. And Greg was was really different from both of us where he came from. He actually started playing classical. Uh, he, he played classical in mm -hmm. high school and college and then kind of came to rock and the electric guitar later. Um, and when he did, it was kind of through the uh, through a lens of, of the jazz world in general. Um, so Greg really brings this whole separate like set of jazz standards and tonality and the way he likes to play and the way, you know, the types of picks he likes and the type of sets of strings that he likes. It's very influenced by jazz or classical music, which are really two very different things. Um, so yeah, his, his, his take on things is, is wholly different. And by now I've actually forgot the original question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, uh, that's interesting because his, uh, phrasing on guitar is, uh, different than the the normal rock player so that that makes a lot of sense that his background um t taking one of your influences uh let's say uh getty lee from rush can you pinpoint anything that specifically you got from him um in terms of yeah playing bass singing what whatnot Oh, that's actually that's actually a good one to point out there. Um, so I, I I sing in the band also, and uh, and I've sang in in most of the bands that I've been in, um, and I, just so that just by itself, Getty Lee being a singing bass player is is a pretty huge influence right there. Um, I can't sing nearly as high as Getty Lee, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I I really I do really like his bass tone. On a lot of a lot of the classics, especially from kind of the the mid '70s and later. So I, I really like Rush between like the late '70s and mid '80s uh, so like with permanent waves. Um, uh, yeah, moving pictures, those albums. Pictures. Yeah. Also, also you know, power windows and stuff, and mm -hmm. it, you know, his playing on a on a wall bass was really cool. But um, 
but I, but I do really like his snarly tone. And I think maybe that, that came from, uh, certainly just wanting to be heard is, was one thing, but maybe also my, my early experiences with, uh, being able to, to use overdrive and, and pedals and stuff like that. I just really like that kind of, um, bright single coil tone with all that snarliness and how it wasn't buried. I kind of liked how, how upfront in the mix you could be in that kind of trio setting, which has also been a, a reason that I've kind of sought trios out to, uh, to have a greater footprint in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned the singing part. Um, so I, I don't know if the audience realizes this, but singing and playing bass is about as hard as it can be maybe playing drums and singing is <laughs> equal if not harder explain <laughs> to me how you practice that like do you work on the baseline first memorize the lyrics and then combine the two or what what have you found works sure yeah well uh i would i would love to say that that i'm great at doing both at the same time but i'm not really excellent at doing either of them individually <laughs> really but the combination is just when, when you when you combine them, one thing is always going to suffer a little bit. So what I, what I found is that you have to get one of the two things more or less automatic for the parts that you are mm-hmm. doing both in. So obviously when when you're singing playing, you're not singing a hundred percent of the time, and you you may or may not be playing a hundred percent of the time depending on what what instrument you play. But when you are doing both things at the same time. For me, what what I've what I feel like is, is one thing kind of has to take a back seat, and uh, that tends to be the the base for for me. So I, I tend to need to have my part pretty well memorized, like just all the kind of muscle memory and and that stuff uh, for for verses of songs that I'm going to be singing and playing. So in in Bleed the Feeling Full, for example, um, actually I really like the I really like the instrumentation on that track because. The uh, the bass is kind of based off of a Latin tumbao, so it's I used to play in a big salsa group, a big twelve mm. person salsa group, and I really like salsa and Latin music also. And and there's a rhythmic figure called a tumbao that the bass usually plays in that type of music, and the bass line in that song is based off of it. So I, I have I've done that a bunch of times and can kind of just play a tumbao in my sleep, and then it's uh it's just changes. It just it's like a one two five or or one four five set of changes um so i kind of just got that part to be more or less automatic so i can focus on what i'm singing i think people tend to tend to gravitate more or kind of lock in better with a singer than with any other instrument um because they that's it's more relatable i guess i mean most everybody sings in the shower in the car but not that many people play air bass or you know air drums or <laughs> i agree air guitar. I agree. so yeah one one thing kind of has to go on autopilot and usually for me it's it's the bass playing part that makes sense you you mentioned having the snarliness of uh round wound strings tell me a little bit about your concept of bass tone um if you had to boil it down in words, oh man, that's a that's a great subject. I love talking about this too because it's it kind of goes. I had it kind of like goes into my whole ethos of of bass playing and so there. I mean, so really, I, I think to to start out with, um, there are 
I think if you if you really narrow it down, if you really boil things down, you discover two schools of people that 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 play the bass. And one is people that really enjoy the role that a bass typically plays in in modern music that that the electric bass kind of carved out for itself. And actually the upright the the upright bass before that, but the the supportive role that many instruments could play. A tuba used to play it in jazz. Um, piano can play it with left hand. Certainly key bass and a lot of modern music can play that, that low supportive role. So that's one school of, uh, of players. And then there's another group of players um, that maybe are, are, are more like myself, where they didn't necessarily come to the bass because of a specific desired role that they wanted to play. Um, but they just got one put in their hands for some reason. And those those people maybe are more interested in just the sounds that a bass makes, just the, the tonality that it has and, and the possibilities that it has and the way that it sounds. My my first teacher, who was a guitarist, also probably influential in, in the way that I play, uh, but a really, really, really great teacher. His name was James Michael Thomas, and he, he died very young when I was still taking lessons from him. Um, he used to be a, a touring player with Ray Charles and a bunch of folks, and he was um, he just managed a little suburban music store here in Mill Creek, Washington. And uh, he, he 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 would teach me. He taught me that that I was a bass player and he was a guitarist, but we're both musicians first. That 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 concept of musicianship and they're they're kind of being like a a well of creativity in general that you draw from that was primary, and then the the specific paintbrush that you use to you know to to paint your painting that was the secondary thing, and that was the instrument. Mm -hmm. So I I always see myself as a musician first and a bass player second, even though I really really love being a bassist. But because I'm kind of more into the sounds that a bass makes and the sounds that a bass can make, it's got this really wide frequency range. Um, I tend to really want to maintain that wide frequency range. So I like round wound strings or, or brighter uh, steel strings or brighter nickel strings. Um, I like using pretty high fidelity uh, gear. Um, I like to have a pretty full range sound and I, I use effects a bunch. So for me, um, I really like a fully harmonically rich sound and that doesn't work in all contexts. And when I'm working with somebody else as a, as a hired gun, I'll definitely take, you know, way more of a traditional approach. So it really depends on on what I'm doing. But if I'm doing my own stuff, I really like for the bass to be a, a big, wide, large piano-like instrument. That's funny that you mentioned uh, the the wide frequency range doesn't work for everything. I've always wondered about that because um, you're right. Like if you're playing something that's really high-end, um, and you're playing like a Motown sound or song, it doesn't quite work. And I, I yeah, it doesn't quite do the trick. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure why, um, but it it just doesn't. I think a lot of it just is, a lot of it is just related to what people are used to hearing. So when you're mm -hmm. playing in a paradigm that's already uh, it's already set, like you're you're playing within a framework um, that people are already expecting. They they have they have an expectation of what it's going to sound like. Um, then you know you kind of you kind of owe it to the listeners and, and owe it to the artist and to yourself to be true to that framework and true to that paradigm, and and do it justice. Uh, so 
it's not always the case that that you're looking to make a statement, you know, every time you play. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's it. As someone who's so tuned in to getting great sound, having you as an endorsee of my equipment is a thrill for me. Can can you tell me how you've used some of the equipment that I've designed, in particular the Tuner DI TD? Uh, I certainly, yeah, I certainly can. I I love that piece of gear, and and actually for for some of the listeners who who don't know, and I, I would I would actually guess that nobody really knows this that much except for you and I. Um, it was really fun for me to to have a to have just a little a little role in in the uh, the the creation of the current version of it too, which was really exciting. I I got to do a little bit of the testing of the previous version and yep. and give some feedback and the the TDI is is just the best the best DI for when you don't want something that is going to color your sound. And in full honesty, I mean, sometimes you do. Like, it, it, yes. sometimes you want, sometimes you want a Sansamp. Some, sometimes you mm-hmm. want something that's going to give you EQ options and dirt and, and cabinet emulation. But we were just talking about, you know, crafting tone and kind of the way that that I think about tone. And uh, you know, I'm definitely not unique there. A, a bunch of people are very, very picky and specific about the way that they sound. And if you spend a bunch of time working that stuff out. You also want a, a great, reliable piece of gear that is going to be true to the sound that that you spent so much time on. And I tend to like more transparent things. I tend to like transparent bass amps and transparent bass cabs. And so for me, the the, the TDI being uh, so transparent and not having a bunch of options for you know changing your the level of grit or you know, bass or EQ. I don't need additional preamps. I've got a preamp on board. I don't need that stuff. For me, it's just perfect, and it does its job flawlessly. And having the the Jensen transformer in there, um, admittedly, I don't know as much about transformers as a lot of my audiophile friends. But whenever I show them that pedal and, and explain that there actually is a real trans transformer balance DI, and it's not only a transformer but it's a Jensen, there everybody's like, oh, wow, no kidding. Well, that, that's that's pretty great. And on, on top of that, the tuner function is just, I mean, this sounds like marketing spiel, but it's just the best tuner I've ever used for bass. I've never experienced a tuner that can track a bass string so well, playing an open string, not even playing a harmonic, down to a low B. It's just, I don't know how you did that, but uh, it, it's a really, really effective tuner. I, I think that's the benefit of me being tenacious and being a bass player. I was like, if I'm going to put a tuner out, it better go down to 20 hertz. <laughs> it better go down really low. So Yeah, I, it does. I and I don't know that. how it reacts so quickly, but but it does. It's It's awesome. Great. I appreciate that. Let's change gears a little bit. Um, so you, you do quite a bit of freelance uh, work uh, as a musician. Can you tell me what skills you found are critical in the life of a freelance musician? Yeah, um, I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I am doing a lot of freelance stuff. And uh, the, I think that, I mean, I, I guess the, the primary skill to have when you're working with other people is the ability to adapt so sort of a a chameleon-like nature and uh, that kind of goes back um, to what we were just just talking about with playing within a certain kind of paradigm or within a certain genre 
and being kind of true to that. So feeling out, feeling out who you're working with, um, if it's an artist that has hired you or a producer or whatever, feeling them out and kind of uh, trying to figure out without just blatantly asking um, what they're looking for is a skill in and of itself. And that's, that's something that, that I'm working on. Um, but really it just kind of, uh, I think a lot of it comes down to listening. If you just listen to a lot of different kinds of music, a lot of different kinds of stuff, um, and it's in your ears, then it'll be easier for you to play that way authentically. And if you can play that way authentically, then it's just a matter of kind of using the right, the right stuff, the right tools that give you the right kind of tone. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think adaptability, a really good ear is helpful. So I, I encourage everybody to work on your ear training. It's something that, that I worked a lot on when I was, uh, when, it, during my, my formative bass playing years. And I think that more than any other facet of my, my playing or anything that I've done, I think that, that my ear and ability to practically apply theory on a fretboard has been my my biggest, hugest like save, saving grace and value point. Just being able to listen to stuff and play along relatively quickly, um, that's that's huge. Mm -hmm. And it'll save people the, the the time and trouble of writing out stuff if they don't need to. But it just it's important because even when you're reading, there's a danger in reading, and I see this sometimes with students who are more classically um, oriented who for their entire playing existence have had instructions in front of their face, exactly what to do in the form of, you know, actual sheet music and not, not just chord charts. Um, there's, there is a danger in getting swallowed up by that and never developing your ear because you never get out from behind that page and you're, you're never fully present in the moment and listening to what other people are doing and then being aware of, uh, how how your playing interacts with them because you're just following this, this set of instructions. So it's really important to put away the charts after you after you internalize it to a certain extent, um, so that you're able to really pay attention, see what's going on. Hmm. Yeah, and that brings up. I was just going to ask, what are some mistakes you find many freelancers make? Um, can you think of any others other than uh, not being able to use your ear? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, <clears throat> also, I guess I, I should have mentioned this is the biggest thing. So this this is either, I think, the biggest value point or the biggest detractor for anybody. And it has nothing to do with playing an instrument. It's just what kind of person you are and mm -hmm. whether you make whether you make the experience fun and easy or whether you're a jerk and you're standoffish or you're late, you're unprepared you're a mess when you show up, you know, you're unshowered or whatever it is. I mean, if you if you are a dependable, reliable person who's fun to be around and you get the job done, then you're going to be hired way more than the guy who is brilliant on his instrument, but he makes you suffer for it. You know, and and the and the brilliant the brilliance doesn't really matter that much. Like not not very many people who hire you to play bass or who hire you to play piano or whatever it is, especially if they're singers, especially they're singer songwriters or artists themselves, not very many of those people want you to be the best in the world at what you do because they don't want to be outshone. They don't, they don't want to be, you know, uh, made to, made to look bad. So people don't always want 
uh, the, the most virtuosic bassist or the most virtuosic drummer or flautist or whatever it is. They just want somebody who can do the job and do it well. And then they want to move on to the next task, the next thing they have to worry about, because they've got a bunch of marketing stuff they need to worry about. They have to hire other band members. They have to book sessions. They've got to send people electronic payments. There's a bunch of things that they're worrying about. And number one on their list is not you. So mm -hmm. the, the biggest thing that you can do is just kind of make it easy for them. Um, John Herrera, uh, in, uh, the, the writer for Bass Player Magazine, just wrote a great, a great article about being easy in the studio. And it's, it's all this stuff. His whole, his whole thing, his whole point was just, just be easy. Just go with the flow. You know your stuff and be practiced and well rehearsed and everything. But if they want to try a different instrument or a different piece of gear, just say, okay, let's try that. And be positive and show up on time. And I think that's kind of the biggest stuff. The biggest mistake that you can make is thinking that that's not important and thinking that your technical ability on the instrument is going to save you and it's going to make you in demand because really not very many people care about that. That's that's a great lesson and it's true in so many different disciplines too. I've, uh, I'm sure you've seen it in other lines of work, but uh, especially in in collaborative situations you, you don't want a prima donna anywhere um, it just destroys the collaboration yeah yeah that's very true actually that's yeah that's great that's a the, that that word is a good word to use collaboration yeah, it's really not it's not like uh you're not being hired to just kind of be the star of the show mm -hmm. at least not not usually i mean sometimes i guess that that happens and that's really nice for you when it happens if that's what you're looking for but that's pretty rare. So yeah, it's a collaboration, just just like you said. Tell me about the importance of a musician's ability to hustle for work, and and what does that look like? Oh man, yeah, it's that's of the utmost importance, and that's another thing that I'm still trying to work out. It's it's difficult, you know. It's it's difficult in this day and age where we don't have a studio culture like there used to exist. Um, in the in the 60s and 70s especially but i mean even even in the 80s there's a lot less money in music it's something that we all we all kind of know and are feeling uh record label deals are 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 less omnipresent i mean there just used to be a time when that was just all you all you hoped for but uh, even if you are signed to a deal these days that's often not really a great move to make especially if you can do stuff independently so your ability to uh, to network, I think, is just paramount. Uh, it's so much of playing music for a living. Uh, it comes down to the, the people that you have fostered and maintained relationships with and uh, just kind of building out your, your network. And you really do have to be good at marketing. And social media is really important. Um, the way that you present yourself and the way that you, you talk about yourself and talk about others is, is really important. And you have to be proactive. You can't just have an ad on Craigslist and sit back and wait for, wait for the calls and emails to come in because there's just not that much demand. There's not, there's not that much demand for a player. There's mm -hmm. a lot of demand for a job by a lot of players and there's very few jobs. So you have to get, you have to get really, um, you have to be really on point. And it's tough because it gets tiring, and I get I get 
I get tired from doing all that stuff. Sometimes I get a little bit burnt out. Mm-hmm. I think everybody does. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's important. You can't neglect that side of the business and the most successful people that I know, um, who are just working class guys, working class musicians like, like us just kind of doing the job and, and making it work and making a living out of it. Um, guys like I'll, I'll name check my buddy, Tony Paleo from Boston. Um, he's, he's a great example. He plays with the, the blue man group, which is what a great gig to have. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Killian Duarte, a, a bunch of a bunch of folks. Um, the ability to do more than one thing is is really important. Is nowadays everybody has to diversify. So if you can if you can write uh, write your thoughts, like if you if you are somebody who's inclined to writing and you have uh, you've been teaching and you have thoughts on uh, a teaching program or or theory as it's applied to the base or something, and you write something about that, it's very easy to publish that on Amazon these days. That's a great little slice of, you know, pillar of income, pillar of your, uh, your, your entire, your entire thing that you're doing that, that can help a lot. Um, teaching is great to do, uh, obviously playing. That's, that's what we all probably want to be doing. Um, that's my favorite part is playing live, but so live playing, studio recording, teaching, Putting out albums, playing on other people's albums, um, any uh, clinics, any other kind of things like that that you can do, points of value that you can offer people. Uh, it's important to do all that stuff. I mean, if you look at Victor Wooten, he's got he's got his nature camps, he's got books, he's got albums, his own, and a bunch of other people. Uh, he's doing clinics. You know, he's working with Harkies. He's doing all this stuff. And I think that's kind of he's a great model for uh, for success for this current uh, current iteration of the music industry that he's been really successful in doing many things, none of them alone, which would uh, would add up to a full income that you can rely Mm -hmm. on. But Mm -hmm. all of them are pieces of it. So. Yeah, your ability to, to hustle for all those things, do all those pieces, and do, or do as many as you can, and to seek out all those opportunities and to create opportunities where there aren't any, that's that's hugely important. And uh, I, man, I'm feeling that deeply myself right now, and trying to figure out all the different value points that that I can offer the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Victor Wooten's a great example. I, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but but you're right. He's a great example of somebody um, creating opportunities and uh, trying different things and on top of it he's an amazing bass player he really is yeah he's he's just he's just a huge inspiration i think like many bass players he's probably my my biggest inspiration and the coolest thing is he's he's genuinely a really great guy in person he's a he's a very nice very humble man Hmm. and he just has the right attitude and that just, you know, goes back to the whole attitude thing. Attitude really matters quite a bit. If you tell somebody, oh, I'm, I'm a professional bass player, what do you find that they don't understand about what that means? Well, I think most people, musicians and, and non-musicians alike, still don't, uh, still don't fully grasp or aren't aware that being a full-time musician or somebody involved in music in general, whether you're a manufacturer or whatever it is, does involve all those things we just talked about that that it does involve all these different facets of of the industry 
I think when I tell people that, <laughs> I'm still not really quite sure my what my favorite way is to phrase that when people ask what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what what people uh, what people visualize is you know the sort of parodied like 1980s uh, rocker kind of thing that they get from from movies and stuff where you wake up at noon and <laughs> and uh, you know you only wear like torn jeans and you have a small apartment and you know your life is kind of a mess and and you just and you just like play all night or something uh, really playing playing is almost the smallest part of mm-hmm. what i do and most of the people that that i know who are who are doing this and and making it work at least for the moment are in the same boat playing is really kind of if you if you look at it in terms of minutes spent, it's definitely in the minority. So there's all this other stuff that goes into it. There's all of the marketing and and all of uh, all the other tasks, audio production and teaching and all of these things that are that that really define what it is to be a professional music now in 2017. That didn't necessarily divide it or define it in 1997 or 1987. Mm-hmm. Or, Whenever it was, so I think a lot of people don't get how much work it really is, and and they just assume that you're just having fun all the time. And I wish it were like that. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, great if we get back to that. How has the internet surprised you in a positive way in terms of uh, being a musician? Well, you know, I'll I'll put it. The first thing that comes to mind is uh, is more specifically in the realm of bass players. So I'll I'll kind of frame my answer in uh, in in terms of bass players. But I've been surprised that so many bass players are so uh, I'm not sure what the right word is to use, but they're they're just so they're so friendly with each other. They're so supportive. I guess supportive is is hmm. what I was looking for. There are a lot of, and maybe that comes from our, you know, the role that we often play. We're often just really supportive, kind of easygoing folks. Um, but there are a lot of other instrumentalists, um, specifically ones that are that are more soloist oriented, uh, that are a lot more cutthroat with each other, and they just don't they don't really support each other or um, you know share their content on on the internet on social sites or things like that. But but bass players, for the most part, in my experience, really have been very cool. And even guys that you you know you're technically competing with for for the work that's out there, most of them, the the vast majority, I mean, in the in the ninety percent and and up, are are just really nice, supportive guys um, who kind of are happy to see you succeed or want to help you succeed. And that's been surprising because mm-hmm. I kind of expected that there would be a lot more um, infighting or a lot more jockeying for position or a specific job or a specific role. Uh, but uh, but bass players have, have actually really been really supportive, which is which is really cool. And and now there are so many there's so many Facebook groups for bass players out there. Um, there's TalkBass, which is great as a forum and I use all the time. Um, I've recently started my own Facebook group uh, just for players in the kind of the Oregon, Washington, um, BC zone, the, the Cascadia zone called Cascadia Deep. And uh, everybody's really great in there. Um, yeah, we're just kind of a friendly bunch. So that's been, that's been surprising. I expected there, I expected to have to kind of, you know, have more blood drawn, you know, mm-hmm. that the people would be more, more catty, but, uh, 
No, really, um, really, folks have been very, very supportive. And I also, it's also kind of interesting how the internet kind of brings everybody down to the same level. I don't think that there's ever been a time when your heroes are as accessible as they are now. Yeah. And you can, you can, you can, you know, share comments or messages with, with the the biggest people in the business. And it's uh, not unusual to to have that happen. That's that's pretty cool. That level of accessibility was never there before. When you had to write a letter to somebody's management or something, and you never knew whether it got to them. I mean, people are really much more accessible now than than they appear to be. That's a great point. You offer lessons. You mentioned a while back. Uh, how has the landscape for giving lessons changed with the internet? Well, so now a bunch of people are getting involved in remote lessons, which is, is something that I'm getting involved in too, and I think that's that's very cool. So the 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 um, <clears throat> I've I've just become hyper conscious that I'm using the word paradigm a lot. I, I think I really like I think I really like the word paradigm. I think you have to that's, write a song about it or something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that makes me think of a Soundgarden song that uses that word that I love. Um. But uh, yeah, I'm not going to shy away from it. I'm going to say paradigm again. Um, <laughs> so the the paradigm of of space has always been the dominant one, like pre-internet, and, and not just pre-internet, but pre-broadband. You know, everybody having high-speed internet, so you could only take lessons from somebody who's geographically close to you. Yes. Uh, but now it's possible to take lessons from somebody in Norway. Um, highly possible if you are somebody who's in Norway, but now it's possible to take lessons from somebody in Norway if you're in Seattle. Um, so it, it opens you up um, to a world of a world of ideas and, and information and teachers. And the other side of that is now the teachers really have to step up and offer something kind of unique and, and really great because now people do have all these other options and. They don't just have to, if you're the only teacher in town in a 30,000 person town in the middle of nowhere, now you're not the only game in town anymore and you can't just rely on being the only guy. You actually have to, you know, offer value and, and be good. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, the internet really opened up tons and tons of options I and mean, great, great people, great players giving, giving lessons on there. And for anybody who's interested in taking lessons with me, by the way, I, I would love I would love to have you. I offer Skype lessons, and you can contact me at uh, seanfairchild.com. And I imagine that link will show up somewhere. So, I was just going to ask, how can people find out more about you? And uh, you just did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so yeah, the, the website is is seanfairchild.com. It's S-E-A-N-F-A-I-R-C-H-I-L-D.com. And uh, I am also on, uh, I also have um, uh, a brand new, actually, I just launched a brand new Facebook artist page. I've been using my personal profile page as an artist page for a while, but I decided it was finally time to launch an artist page. So I've launched an artist page and have an Instagram account and Twitter all under the name Sean on Bass, all one word. S-E-A-N-O-N-B-A-S-S. So find me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Sean on Base. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Sean. This has been a great interview. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Ted. Me too. Man, we can, we, I'd, I'd be happy to do this every week. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to this Sonic Nuance Electronics podcast. 
Please also see our blog at sonicnuance.com, which has more articles on performance, equipment, as well as interviews. SonicNuance.com has handmade rugged direct boxes with phantom-powered chromatic tuners as well as instrument and headphone extension cables. All products are designed, tested, and made in the USA for the ultimate in fidelity and durability. Sonic Nuance Electronics. Simply sound. <laughs>